0: We've launched a new Let It Roll website at the same old URL, LetItRollPodcast.com. It's a complete archive of all of our 350-plus shows, sorted by season, miniseries, co-host, guest, genre, and era. It's also a great way to support the show. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber if you can afford it. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at LetItRollCast. Let it roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ed Legg continue their discussion of Michelangelo Matos' Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year, with a look at the composition and recording of We Are the World. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll. Or should I say 80s roll? That's right, if I say that, that means I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm welcoming back Ed Legg, the Freebird Yeller, to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's can't slow down. How 1984 became pop's blockbuster year, and I had to pause for a minute because I was like, "Can't slow down." We're about to be finished with this book. We've got this chapter, and then one more when we talk about we are the, or live aid with Michelangelo Matos himself. So Ed, I hope you're getting ready for that.
2: I'm getting psyched up as we speak.
1: Excellent, excellent. And this this week, where it's a prelude to live aid in which we record we are the world but we don't get there immediately um we've got a we've got a it's set the chapter's officially set at westwood one culver city california april 20th 1985 which is the studio where they recorded we're the world but Matos, Matos, as is his want um elegantly sums up the year and 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 gets us to we are the world. So let's let's do that. And he talks about the massive sales figures in 1984. It turned the industry back to health and affluence, which you know, from 1945 to 1979, the record industry was recession-proof. And then the 1979 uh, Iranian oil embargo and and all the stuff craziness that went on with that triggered a recession. That because the record industry had gotten so big and so bloated, and overinvested in disco, among other things, uh, there was an actual crash in 1984. Is kind of what fixed it, and uh, the CD is a big part of this. this is the first year that um, CDs really became a part of a big commercial market, and at the beginning of the year, they uh, didn't have. Um, CDs were like an extra cherry on the top, but by the end of the year, they're part of the marketing process. And it's no longer a big deal to have your album released on CD. It's happening at the same time that things are coming out. Like 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 a Virgin came out as uh, a CD, a cassette and a vinyl record all at the same time. Plus you've got the Sony Discman for $300 uh, that, that was a portable answer to the Sony Walkman where you could play your cassettes and walk around. Now you could play your discs and walk around and Madonna's Like a Virgin comes out, two million sold right out the gate, vinyl, cassettes, and CD, plus the epic soundtrack to Beverly Hills Cop, Eddie Murphy's massive movie smash, The Simpson Bruckheimer. Um, yeah, a, a movie that changed the way movies would be made and how soundtracks would be done. We talked about Miami Vice, which was a big deal for playing rock and roll as part of the soundtrack on a TV show. Beverly Hills Cop is the first movie that makes it wall-to-wall Music videos, essentially. Do you remember that? Do you remember how shocking uh, Beverly Hills Cop was when it came out? You know, I don't.
2: I mean, I remember seeing. You know, I remember the movie, and I remember seeing it. I feel like it came out in the spring. Am I? Am I just? Was I just that late to it that I didn't see it soon enough? Because I mean, I and I. I think it came out in
1: the spring of of um eighty
2: five. Yeah. And I. I mean, yes, I remember all the videos, of course, and all the songs that were on it. But um, was I shocked? I mean, I was. Let's just say that I have a few things in common with um, with uh, Vince Neal and Razzle and all those guys. Not not anywhere near as interesting or spectacular, even or even direct. And so we'll get to Vince was... Neal
1: and Razzle, Vince <laughs> Neal of Motley Crue and Razzle of Hanoi Rocks, which is a, a tragic yes. incident that, that, yes. year, that we'll yep. talk about here in a minute. Yep. But go ahead.
2: But anyway, I was in a bit of a fog, and it was only going to get foggier. So let's, we'll, we'll get to it.
1: I see. I see. So, well, I remember being shocked by Beverly Hills, or not really being shocked, but I just thought it was really cool. And it was only when we, when it came on uh, HBO, the movie channel and Cinemax, and we watched it over and over and over again. And. My friend Joe would joke, and he would do experiments and t- and flip the channel back and forth from um, – we didn't have MTV, as I've said many times, but he would flip it back and forth between uh, Friday Night Videos and Beverly Hills Cop, and it was pretty seamless. I mean – You know there were dialogue and acting in between, but the action scenes were pretty much just music videos, and and you know he would fast forward through the the talking parts, and we would just it was just like watching hours and hours of of videotaped video shows, you know, and we even had some videotape of MTV that we had traded uh, for with some guys we knew from the Emerald (laughs) High wrestling team, but. yeah but let's let's you tease the hair metal you 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 tease the hair metal thing but let's let's get into it so david lee roth is 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 coming back we've talked about van halen several times through the course of this book and this podcast series but now he's got a solo album he's co-hosting mtv specials with martha quinn He's got a video cover, a video of his cover of California Girls. He does a whole solo EP, Crazy from the Heat. It's all song covers. It's the kind of stuff that Ed, Eddie Van Halen was tired of putting on Van Halen albums. Um, and it's, it was clear at this point that Roth was ready to leave the nest, as it were. He's always blamed Eddie Van Halen, saying he pu- was pushed out, but he also jumped Get it, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I knew I you'd did. appreciate that. But what was your take <laughs> on the whole David Lee Roth? Cle- well, the he, first solo he, project.
2: I feel I now feel one more thing to feel guilty about from that era, um, because I liked it. I liked. I'm a big David Lee Roth fan. I saw the 1980. I saw them several times leading up to the '84 tour, and I mean they were getting. Fatuous, you know I mean, they were that was a lot of wind i mean that there was just a lot of noodling and doodling on stage dave and especially dave and edward and um but i like it i mean i like he has a he actually has an edgar one of the songs on there is from one edgar winters albums that i really liked from 10 years before believe it or not easy street but um yeah, i like i mean good. i liked it I enjoy I enjoyed his humor, and I actually missed. I was at a, the last party that that I went to with people from my high school, and I mean I was class of seventy eight, and this is eighty four. So that was the last big party that I ever went to, in, in Decatur, Georgia, just because I happened to be home, and they were having it. So I missed that. I missed the whole thing, Dave and and Martha, but then he was on Letterman like a, a night or literally same week night or two later said the same thing about being a hot dog or a wiener and <laughs> and played the video and me and my bud were just busting a guy when he got to the Midwest farmer's daughter. And he's, I mean, the guy was almost like, um, now I'm gapping on, you know, the Mike Myers character was so campy
1: and Wayne. dumb that it, Uh-oh.
2: yeah, he's I mean, Wayne and, um, International Man of of Mystery. Oh, yeah. Austin Powers. Yes, yes. He really was.
1: was He he was knowingly engaging in self parody and things like the the cover of the Louis Prima medley. And Louis Prima didn't write either of the songs, but he famously did this medley of I Ain't Got Nobody and Just a Gigolo in the 50s. And, um, you know, That was a big tell that things were tongue in cheek in David in David Mm -hmm. Lee Roth's world. And Mm -hmm. and they they certainly, certainly were. But it was it was massively successful. And he was really beloved at that time. And so I could see where he would feel like I'm free, that people love me. I don't need Eddie Van Halen anymore. I don't need to put up with his BS. And of course, Roth was dishing out plenty of BS too but let's go ahead and hear it yeah this is uh David Lee Roth's version of Louis Prima's medley of two songs Louis Prima didn't write just a gigolo and I ain't got nobody roth doing just a gigolo i ain't got nobody uh made famous by louis prima in the 50s and and roth was just a connection to a lot of things that people had forgotten a lot of old pop culture that the rock era had moved beyond or a lot of rock era people didn't know um and you know he capitalized on it and went big but of course very quickly he he quit stormed out of a band meeting and quit, uh sammy hagar took took the opportunity jumped in and and the rest is is van hagar history i never (laughs) dug van hagar but i never really gave it a chance either i know some people who really really love it and and you know it was a it was a maturation of van halen's sound into a completely new direction and i think it was something that eddie was clearly more comfortable with um you know and a lot of people loved it those albums sold units and 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 people that are whose musicology I take pretty seriously think that that Van Halen continued to develop his songwriting style and skills and you know new chords new harmonic ideas and and became just kind of a master of the pop song form in that period in a way that maybe he hadn't been with van halen but we're not finished with the heavy metal scene first we've got uh def leppard uh drummer rick allen crashing his car and uh loses an arm and um actually because of technology was where it was, he was able to play drums with one arm uh, because he was triggering beats with, uh, with electron, uh, triggering electronic beats with his foot, which he didn't do instantly, of course, it would be, uh, uh, I think, a couple of years before. Deaf Leopard toured with him again, but it, it, it is pretty cool that he was able to immediate apparently immediately conceptualize that because the two guitarists went to visit him in the hospital, and, and instead of being bummed out, he was excited because he had this concept in his head, and he and he did pull it off. It's pretty amazing. But then we come to a sadder sure. story, which you referenced, which was um, the Motley Cruz, Vince Neal driving drunk. And gets in a car wreck and kills uh, Razzle, who's the drummer of Hanoi Rocks. Now, were you aware of Hanoi Rocks at all in this period?
2: A tiny bit, but not. In, I mean, they—they they were the kind of band I was looking for and just didn't find. And I yeah. certainly wasn't hearing them on on the you know the Abrams of the classic hits station, you know, on the on the album-oriented rock or classic hits. But they—they they fit right in with my wheelhouse.
1: They absolutely did, and and the thing is with Hanoi Rocks is like they put out I think four albums uh, in Europe. They were a Finnish band, and they're really solid albums. I think that Hanoi Rocks is by far the most accomplished band of the hair metal era. They weren't part of the LA scene until tragically uh, 1985 because they were they were in Europe, but they were much more connected to the punk and new wave scenes that were dominant in England and Europe, and yet had a real rock and roll ethos and had a perfect look for mtv and i really think that they had an excellent shot of having a major hit um you know this that cbs signed them bob Ezrin produced them the famous bob Ezrin who made you know kiss and alice cooper into into successful pop popular artists in the states and everything was queued up for them to go and i think this is one of those moments that really changes rock history because had they stepped into that void things could have been really interesting they had a great album uh two steps from the move i don't know if that's a great album but it's a very solid album if you like hair metal it's it's a really good hair metal album and you know could have would have should have these this was one of the bands that that um you know I think would have would have changed the trajectory of music history a little bit. Insofar as I think that would have kind of preempted Guns N' Roses a little bit, because because without them, the field was left to to bands like Poison, and Poison just wasn't that good, and and sure, really sure. created a, an opening for Guns N' Roses to storm through and change things. When I think Hanoi Rocks maybe i don't know i mean they'd already done so many good albums maybe they were spent but you know once razzle died they definitely were spent now what was your take on these two tragic incidents
2: well it's it's again it's like next weekend i mean i've and last week the the two these chapters about the famine and these serious things that when i was that age plus there was just so much noise so much star noise with the with the the famine relief with, you know, with all the stars and everything. But again, this brought, brought home, um, the tr- some seriously tragic circumstances about Molly Crue that it only fed, you know, what we also find out about them in this, in this chapter. Um, and, the, and, and they weren't going to get sober for another three or four years at least. Um, and, and I mean, Nikki 6 didn't
1: he die and somebody had to, Yep, you know, Kickstart My Heart comments. tells the story of. of no, right, right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> All of right. Nikki okay. Six Odine. and uh, yes. and uh, I think you got the full Pulp Fiction needle in the heart treatment. I could be wrong. Yes, I think yeah,
2: that's what I was thinking too. And I mean, it is. I mean, my best friend that New Year's Eve, he took me home. He was he. I should probably should have been driving, but neither of us should have been driving. And with this, the, the pre-mad days. Plus we all we all started drinking at 18 because that was a drinking age in Georgia in the in the late 70s, yeah. and I mean I I don't agree with the theology of there before the grace of God go I because that's to me says somebody I got grace and somebody else didn't and I don't really believe that I mean but I and I don't believe in luck either but I mean it's just painful because I you know I wasn't driving around a Pantera what was that car called like a, a hot it was a Pantera was driving. Yeah, and sure. A, I mean, I didn't have yeah. that. I was driving a Honda Civic. But, I mean, <laughs> and the comparison stopped way before that. But, I mean, that that changes your life, you know. And he had some other – he had a daughter who, I think, um, ended up getting cancer from, from contamin, a contaminated where they lived or something. I mean, he's had some bad stuff happen. Yeah, but the, yeah. But, but the but being, being the driver of a car when when it kills somebody, that's a really – that's a tough one to to overcome and and he goes they kept going i mean to their i'm i think to their credit they kept going
1: and yeah um, i mean it, it's a lot of people never forgave him for razzle's death and 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 for yeah. seeming to to not take a magic massive career hit but mm-hmm. you know and it was very clear as a fan i can remember theater of pain was one of those albums that just landed like a wet turd on the floor i mean it just it (laughs) there was much anticipation when we knew it was coming out and there was a big uh, of course we had to drive to Amarillo to get it because we couldn't wait three days or whatever for the little hastings record store in our hometown to 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 get it but um our hastings might not have even opened up yet but we had to drive to Amarillo to get the record and and it just wasn't any good and we were kind of doing it because you know, our cool friends who liked metal would, would go on the trip with us. And, and so we were kind of faking it anyway. <laughs> we were more interested. <laughs> I think there was a Smith's record. Or I can't remember what record it was. There was a, a record that, that my new wave buddy and me snuck into our piles without, you know, trying to Good job. <laughs> uh, make our metalhead friends not notice and make fun of us. But, uh, you know, nobody the, the theater of pain was so bad that our metalhead friends actually said, you can put in some of your new wave crap and and we listened to who's Curdo instead <laughs> wow so, yeah i mean um i mean in the boys room was a good cover but it was just a class and i didn't know at the time but it it's it's almost a given if somebody if the quality of a band's albums dropped that much from from one album to the next either somebody died or somebody quit or somebody had a drug problem and yeah, you know that's definitely definitely what happened. But let's go ahead and hear a little bit of Hanoi Rocks. This is their cover of Creedence Clearwater Revival's classic, Up Around the Bend. Roy Rock's cover of Credence Clearwater Revivals up around the bend featuring the martyred Razzle on drums um, before his death. And, and now we have to transition to Michael Jackson and Prince, because we've got to talk a lot about We Are the World at the end of this episode. But with Michael Jackson, most of the update for the end of the year is business related. And a big part of it is this is when Michael makes his move and buys ATV, which was the company that had acquired the rights to the Lennon and McCartney song catalog. I think they'd held it since 69 itself, when John and Paul uh, fought with each other and and managed to... to you know, John Lennon, I think, said something stupid that alienated some investors and 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 you know they lost their shot at getting control of it. And again, McCartney and Yoko Ono had tried to partner to buy it, um, but Yoko pulled out of the deal for various reasons. And so it was available, and Michael Jackson bought it, which Paul McCartney never forgave him for. And I don't know, do you blame him or do you think it was fair game for Michael? I mean, Paul's the one who told him, you know, buy song catalogs and make money, uh, and this was the biggest one of all. Well, I think I think when we talked about this one time before, on that you
2: said it's classic music business story, where some somebody helps somebody else and and pays dearly for it. I yep. think McCart- I, I saw McCartney on the '93 tour, his '93 tour, and he, he gave away pro- the programs were free, and I, he writes about his relationship with Michael in the program. Wow. And I can't. Yes, and I think he. So I think he complained about. Him buying the mute, I mean, the first time, uh, the thing I remember is, is that the first time Michael called him, he didn't believe McCartney didn't believe it was Michael Jackson because his voice had gotten so high. He thought it was a a girl. Hmm. But anyway, um, I do I blame him. I mean, you know, McCartney would have done the same thing.
1: I and think so it, too. It, it he, is sad. Yeah, yeah, it, it is but, sad. Um, go ahead. B- well, I don't know. I was just I was just going to jump on your assertion that McCartney would have done the same thing. I think it's highly likely. I mean, he didn't, you yeah, know, he had the buddy holly Buddy Holly Song catalog was one of those. He didn't write those songs. Yeah. He was just buying them as an investment. And I mean, to me, it's like a compliment that somebody would want to buy your song catalog. and and I think if Michael, it might have behooved Michael to to reach out to Paul McCartney and say, "Hey, I'm putting together this deal. I know you want these songs back so bad. I'd be I'd I'd be thrilled to buy a 30% share in it or whatever, and let you buy the rest or something like that. I think that would have would have locked McCartney in as as a big hero. But ultimately, yeah, the Beatles song catalog was the asset that was of the most value in Michael Jackson's whole um estate when he passed or or uh, he wow. sold it to sony sold it back to sony a few years before he passed, but it ended up becoming the crown jewel of his financial empire. So, you know, it's business, Paul. I mean, <laughs> you know, I can't and, I can't and mind. Paul's
2: a billi- Paul is a billionaire. So Yeah. It, he's exactly. Not
1: hurt. Exactly. I mean, I understand where it's personally painful to him and there are multiple betrayals and, and bungles that that involved that Happened that um, caused those songs to be uh, basically set loose into the business world, but um, you know it is what it is. And and when Michael came along, he had the opportunity and he did it. But now we got to talk about Prince a little bit more before uh, we we move along. And, and and Prince has had such a big 1984 with Purple Rain, one of the top grossing films of the year. I think it was just outside the top 10. The LP was on top of the charts, number one for for half a year. Uh, it was the store's biggest selling record of all. It was Record Bar, the, which was a big record chain, biggest selling record of all time outside of the Christmas season. And then uh, it came out on VHS uh, videotape, and there were 400,000 advance orders. And Prince, being a very savvy operator, I mean, he not only got him, he not only crafted this persona wrote all the songs put the band together you know started the movie conceptualized the movie but then he realized he had gotten too big and puts out rushes out a follow-up album that is anything it's like more of an anti-purple rain than a follow-up album around the world in a day sort of a pseudo psychedelic album and I'm saying pseudo just because he was not a big acid freak, <laughs> like musically, right. I think it's very authentic psychedelia or second generation psychedelia, but it's not truly psychedelic in that he was not actually ahead. As they say, he wasn't, he wasn't yeah. uh, doing a lot of LSD. Um, I don't know. Do you remember when, when, when around the world in a day came out and, and. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I
2: associate it with power stations for some reason. Um, I, and I know that Power Station was a little bit ahead of that. But um, yes, and I mean, it, it. It. I don't remember. I'm not sure if it got ripped or it just because it wasn't Purple Rain. And I mean, that was, that is really soon. To, yeah. I it mean, was, now uh, it
1: seems really soon. Yeah, after, and even then after, it seems really soon. I mean, most people would yes, have taken a year yes. off. But yes. Prince had too many songs uh, in the vault. But I really think <laughs> he deliberately released it to free himself from the weight of purple rain like and like it, it was the opposite strategy of what michael jackson did with bad where where he lets thriller you know thriller comes out in late 82 and he doesn't come out with bad until 1987 and then he's in this position of having to follow up the biggest album of all time and basically tries to one-up thriller and it just yeah. I mean, Bad's an okay album, but it, it's it's not Thriller. It's not even close to it. And, and by 1987, Prince had already done another movie and, and multiple follow-up albums and was ready to drop Sign of the Times, his masterpiece. And I think Prince was very savvy to drop... Uh, to kind of do the most opposite possible thing. Um, But we haven't even talked. He did a massive Purple Rain tour before he did that, spent the second half of the year, you know, touring on that. And they also talk about all the songs he was producing and writing, including the infamous Sugar Walls by Sheena Easton. I mean, getting somebody like Sheena Easton, who had an absolutely G-rated persona to – put out a song as vulgar sugar walls (laughs) it's no wonder he did it under a pseudonym alexander never mind but a pseudonym like that everybody their dog is gonna know it was it was prince you know i mean i don't know did you ever hear
2: did you ever hear it on the radio that song
1: Mm, no i definitely didn't but i was in borger texas so the Amarillo stations you know weren't playing just a ton of prints and they didn't get far past sure. you know when the doves cry and let's uh, uh, let's go crazy and and um but i did hear it on video shows and i heard about it i mean i heard that song i don't know where but i don't remember hearing on the radio but i know i heard it many times I mean, the the only time i heard it
2: that i can remember and i this was a little bit before material girl the hit which i which i enjoyed and started really like a madonna then but um i was driving toward atlanta pretty late like after midnight and um that song comes on and i'm, I'm thinking to my i'm thinking to myself is this what i think it's about <laughs> 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 i mean good lord and, yep. and i mean she's a apparently in person she is a stunningly beautiful woman which has nothing to do with any of this except she's suddenly hanging out with him and and good old prince i mean he's he brings the, he brings that stuff you know he he doesn't shy away
0: from, no, no. from that topic
1: he, that was his persona he personified yep. sex and and yep. was able to do it in such a compelling way that everybody wanted to participate including Sheena <laughs> easton um, yes you know, <laughs> and, and she kind of did. It kind of got
2: into it. Kind of got sexy too. And I mean, I, I, I mean, yeah, but she was part of
1: the. Yeah, she was part of the prince, um, yes. extended family in a way, and 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 okay. you know, yeah. she 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 it made much more sense. I mean, she was. Yes. Yeah. She, you know, she 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 kind of stepped into the void that Vanity Six uh had had. You know, the, that niche. But let's go sure. ahead and take our sponsor break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the PMRC, the Parents Musical Resource Coalition that rose in response to things like Sugar Walls and Darla Nikki. you know, we got so used to warning labels on albums and cassettes and CDs, whatever you want to call them, that it's hard to remember there was a time before that. And there are specific people who were responsible for that piece of uselessness. And it starts with Susan Baker, who was the wife of Secretary Tre- Treas- Treasury Secretary of the Treasury James A. Baker, um, who was horrified when her uh, tween-age daughter asked what a version was because she had heard. Like a virgin by Madonna. And I don't know. I mean, that's the kind of thing, you know, a, a, that you could have heard at church, you know, like you heard about the virgin mary <laughs> and and Mike I, I believe that's when I came out where I had to ask somebody, what's a virgin? Because they were talking about the virgin birth and the miracle of virgin birth so much that, you know. But anyway, Susan Baker t- hooks up with Tipper Gore, the wife of Al Gore, and she had been horrified when her daughter discovered Princess Darling Nikki. And so uh, they formed the Parents' Music Resource Center. Sorry, not coalition. And, um, yeah, and and it it becomes a big deal, a, a classic moral panic Were you panicked at it.
2: I was panicked that somebody was having a moral panic. That was, (laughs) yes. It it, is a worrisome sign. Well, they get, what was the, the, the fuck like a beast? That was one of the ones they used as a reference. Wasp. Um, Yes. Yes. yes, Yeah. Thank
1: you. And, and yeah, and Wasp definitely didn't, I mean, Wasp was a perfectly great second or third tier hair metal band, but they got a lot of shine out of that and the dead Kennedys got some shine out of it because of their song too drunk to F and, and then, um, which I loved. I love that. It was a classic. It's a great song. (laughs) And, 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 uh, yeah, wasp didn't age well, but, um, and I'm talking about at the time, I can remember their first album was kind of okay. Their second album, we threw it out of the car, uh, one lonely night when, when we had to listen to it the whole way through and we're just like, this is terrible. Um, but (laughs) uh the the there was also the mentors uh, and el duche who owe their entire career to the pmrc you know mm-hmm. like that they would they would seize bands out of complete obscurity and 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 trumpet their filthy songs you know and and <laughs> kids wanted to, i mean i definitely ran out and bought a mentors album it wasn't easy to do and it wasn't very good but or any good but you know we found it but anyway uh we should we should um any any more thoughts on the PMRC?
2: It it's you know what it's it speaks for itself and it was fun seeing D
1: Snyder and Frank Zappa in a suit. Yeah, I know D and,
2: wasn't in a suit, but Frank was.
1: Yeah, the 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 alliance of John Denver, D Snyder of Twisted Sister, and Frank Zappa testifying at, at at congressional hearings against this stuff, you know, it was well worth it. But they didn't do anything. They 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 True. didn't slow down the sticker but the stickers didn't do anything either it was just a warning you know for parents like them that you know the bible should come with a sticker because it's full of all kinds of shocking things but anyway real quickly we got to run through the music awards which uh kicked off january 1985 and and so you know um lionel richie uh beat prince out and uh let's see or lionel richie hosted hosted the award and and uh he had just beaten out prince for top artists in 1984 um because he beat prince so badly in adult contemporary uh and and had five singles uh in the top 10 compared to four from purple rain so big year for Lionel Richie, but Prince received 10 nominations and won three favorite pop rock album, favorite soul R&B album and favorite soul R&B song beating out Michael Jackson and Richie. But uh, Richie won six out of his eight nominations. And uh, and this is, you know, the American Music Awards are voted by musicians and, and people in industry. And so apparently Prince is already becoming less popular with the, the, his fellow musicians. And um but prince did win an oscar he he got uh uh best original song score and the last time that the oscars offered that category but he wasn't uh, nominated for best original song which stevie wonder won with i just called to say i love you and it's funny that was a big hit and and in a not very hit movie gene wilder's uh, woman in red uh comedy which wonder soundtrack but we didn't even mention i don't think we mentioned stevie wonder at all in previous Matos can probably correct me but but um i wouldn't be surprised if he mentioned it somewhere but it's just like what a big year when stevie an artist like stevie wonder has a, a major one of his late major hits and hardly can be squeezed into the book so it was a uh, big doings but um yeah but uh, uh i i thought it was it was interesting that um stevie wonder didn't get to perform at the oscars and that they uh they they assigned the song nominees to different singers who had times ties to the film business so diana ross performs i just called to say i love you uh, Anne Ryan King performed against all odds and phil collins cringed when he saw the performance which i mean if you're gonna write a song like that i guess you're gonna to see other people perform it sometimes, but that was a really dinosaur move for the the MPA to insist. Like that's just that's a very pre-rock era move. Whatever executive at the Oscars made that decision, I guarantee you they were not Simpson and Bruckheimer or the producers of Miami Vice. They were they were the old world where they wanted Henry Mancini uh, doing the soundtracks to the movies and and you expected songs to be fungible like somebody would have a hit song and multiple people would sing it and that was the ethos all the way up until basically uh the beatles and bob dylan and you know it it, it took that long to die but now um let's 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 cue one one last song and then we'll get to uh we are the world but here it is prince is the ladder from um around the world in a day and This is one of my favorite songs off that album, but it's completely non-commercial. Starts out with like a minute and 10 seconds of Prince talking uh, about religion. So here's Prince, The Ladder. The latter by Prince off around the world in the day, and now we come to we are the world. And so, um, obviously, do they know it's Christmas had a big impact. And Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson. Um, actually, Lionel Richie got a talking to from uh, Harry Belafonte, or um, second hand. A guy named Ken Cragan uh, conveyed this message, but Harry Belafonte, the great. Uh, Uh, Who just passed away recently, but uh, by the 1980s, you know, he he had been a massive star in the in the 50s, all through the 60s, became a, a film actor, was kind of up there with Sidney Poitier in terms of of african-american stardom by the 80s i mean just a, a made man's made man he was a big deal especially in, in the african-american celebrity community and he was quote ashamed and embarrassed at seeing a bunch of white english kids doing what black americans ought to have been doing i.e helping fight the famine in ethiopia and so um uh ken craigen who was business manager of Lionel Richie's. He had actually managed Harry Chapin or Chapin. How do you say his name? He's the guy who wrote. uh,
2: Chapin is how we always said it. I mean,
1: I always heard
2: it's Chapin. So,
1: Harry Chapin, who had just passed away a little bit before that, um, I want to say in a plane wreck. But he he,
2: yeah, something. Yeah, it was was an accident.
1: A big part of the singer songwriter movement of the early 70s Um, and the Belafonte was thinking in terms of the concert for Bangladesh, which was George Harrison's 1971 uh, hunger relief show where he got Bob Dylan and Eric Clapton and, and had this, you know, had Leon Russell and this big star studded thing, even though none of the Ringo star participated, but John and Paul both set it out. But nonetheless, it was a part of that era where george harrison was the alpha beetle which lasted all of 1971 and into 1972 and this was was the capper you know following up his my sweet lord single and all things Must past album but it was a financial disaster as would happen when you put alan klein in charge of a charity event <laughs> And so they decided to follow the, the do they know it's Christmas model rather than the, than a benefit concert. And they put together, we're the world and, uh, Michael and Lionel Richie wrote it together. And, uh, you know, um, Michael was down to write co-write with Lionel Richie, and they and they focused on making a bombastic, grandiose song. And they listened to a lot of national anthems, and I think that's part of the reason. To me, and I think we dis- did we disagree on this, but I think We Are the World just kicks the crap out of "Do They Know It's Christmas."
2: You know, I I what what I said last time was it I just I I kept having uh, "Do They Know It's Christmas" run through my head. Ah, but, that's right. Yep. but but I will say this having you know read this chapter again and and actually bizarrely the wikipedia page for um USA for Africa or live aid is really good it's strange yeah. i mean i usually don't say that but it's got incredible detail but but the 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 making of this is a pretty it's it's an achievement how they pulled it off and that, yeah. that, and i agree that 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 michael did throw down i mean it, i had forgotten that he had anything to do with it and, you know, which, and it was a setup if he had wanted to do Live 8, and we can, we'll talk about that ne- next week, I'm sure. But, um, but I mean, he really, he wanted to get, he was involved, and, and you've got the top guys doing it. So, I mean, that it's impressive. And it's, I mean, you've got Q on the, on the scene. You've got Stevie. Apparently Ray Charles was at least in there. And yep, he was that's there, some, Bob yeah, but yes, and some he, just some heavyweight talent that they had to manage,
1: and it's very impressive. Yeah, yeah, it it really was, and of course Prince opted out, and and it was a big PR disaster for Prince. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean he didn't like the song. He offered to play guitar on it, which I think would have been cool, but they didn't want that. It didn't fit with the arrangement they had, and. Um, He, you know, it it was a pretty serious PR hit. It established Prince kind of a permanent reputation. I don't know that Prince ever overcame that he was selfish and a prima donna and didn't play well with others, which is all probably true. Um, But did the song raise any less money because Prince wasn't on it? Did it actually materially hurt anybody? I don't think so. But, you know at uh it, I, I don't know and and when you think about what he's thinking about at this point <laughs> when he's trying to get away from the purple rain image maybe part of that was deliberate i mean maybe he wanted to alienate people a little bit and i think the i think it's no coincidence that he emulated the beatles on on uh around the world in a day um and i wonder if he was A student of John Lennon and Yoko Ono, if if he realized that John Lennon had used Yoko Ono to break free of the Beatles curse and he was looking to do something similar. That's probably overthinking it. I doubt Prince probably wasn't that aware of the Beatles' early 70s history. But anyway, just something to think about. But let's, um, any more thoughts on Prince before we move back to the actual recording of? Well, I
2: I don't think, I can't remember, was it this tale that included the fact that? That his that he went out on the town and then his bodyguards or that was that the tour where he went out on the town and then his bodyguards wouldn't let people look at him or yeah. you know got mad at him that is that, that's not the first time I've heard that about Prince that I've heard about second or third hand people who worked for him who weren't even allowed to be in the same room with him you know and they, they were employed but or and they certainly couldn't look at him or talk
1: to him. <laughs> yeah and and that's uh you know a weird thing and it it reminds you of these stories you hear about like jeff bezos's cleaning lady where she had to climb out of a window and hide because she wasn't supposed to be seen and bezos was coming her direction and it's a pretty weird thing when you're that powerful and wealthy and you can just say i don't want to interact with these people it's it's you know, one of the definite dangers of fame and power, and it doesn't make you a better person, that's for sure. And it, yeah, I mean, um, Prince had a very productive life, I'm very sad when he passed. But, yeah, you know, uh, I and I certainly I certainly would have done worse with that kind of wealth and power.
2: I can't Me like, too. I Me to too, think. buddy.
1: Yep. I shudder to think what I would have done uh, with those kind of opportunities to do bad things. But anyway, say we're safe from that by my lack of talent. But there you go. It, it's uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, but back to the to the to the to the wealthy uh, celebrities trying to save the world, and um, yeah. I mean, a massive undertaking. Forty six different voices had to mesh as one. The the song's key was too high. For many of the singers, like Springst- Bruce Springsteen, uh, uh, Waylon Jennings, and Will- Willie Nelson, were all asked to sit out for the choruses. And uh, but when Quincy Jones played back the choruses of finished product, everyone was blown away. And then they had, um, you know, some good solos from people like Cyndi Lauper with really powerful voices. But it took uh, several colleagues to save the Bob Dylan contribution to the song, <laughs> so including
2: Stevie. Including yep. Stevie showing him how to sing like Bob Dylan. Yep, yep, <laughs> yep. That It's just, uh, Stevie's classic. like a hero, a hero. And then he comes back and does Springsteen's part. I just read that today and I'm like, did I read that in the book or did I read it somewhere else? Yeah. He, that supposedly he sang Springsteen's part at the right. end too. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. that's some serious, you, I mean, that is some serious recording talent in that room and to, to manage that that many people
1: yeah that um, was quincy jones I, I i mean obviously michael and lionel were, were leaders on it yes. but i think quincy jones is a yeah. steady hand at, at behind yep. the i think i think i think a lot of people there uh probably respected quincy and my and i'm sure he had encountered many of them yes. many times and so I, he had a lot of authority um and a lot of respect from all aspects of the music business and so i think that definitely was a factor but but it's also interesting is when these super talented people work with each other and who outperforms who is really telling i mean it's a lot like uh you know when collegiate athletes move up to the pro leagues in an nba or nfl or major league baseball or whatever and and you suddenly see these enormous differences in ability Mm -hmm. and you know so somebody like stevie wonder who can not only sing his part, but jump in and sing other people's part in their voices. You know, uh, yeah. amazing, amazing talents. But let's go ahead and hear our last song snippet. And this is this is uh, Michael Jackson doing a demo of the song, We Are the World. Michael Jackson's solo, We Are the World.
2: When we should hear certain calls Cause the world, it seems, is right in this
0: line Cause there's a chance we're taking
2: In needing our own lives
0: It seems we need a nothing at all And
1: that was Michael Jackson's solo demo for We Are The World that I presume was was uh, sent around to the people who participated, the 46 other singers who participated in it. And um, yeah, it was. And then once it once it hit the streets, it was this. Incredible uh, celebrity blowout, it made the hype for uh, Do They Know It's Christmas. Obviously, that was a bigger deal in England. But it was a deal in the States. I mean, it got news coverage and, and was a hit record in the States. But We Are The World was celebrity overdose. If, if, you know, for me, for someone like me who was hating all basically all of dominant culture all the time, there was a lot of rock stars in one room singing what I thought was a corny ballad. And I hated it. Um, it was it – was, <laughs> It just you know i couldn't i it, it didn't i didn't see any connection to helping people i just saw a lot of people sort of congratulating themselves but in retrospect i see it as people doing the best they can i mean they're trying to help people and they're and they're working way outside their comfort zone i mean can you imagine me waylon jennings and showing up in that studio <laughs> you know no i mean and I mean, how about I mean.
2: that they they were they were intimidated by james taylor all. Yeah, I didn't know people were intimidated by his voice, but that—that's <laughs> what they said. And I mean, I get—I—I I would have been intimidated by all of them probably. Yeah. But, um, you know, he loomed large to to that group, and no, I can't.
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and how
2: do you how do you maintain your your sense of because to do that there has to be a, a level of I'm worth paying attention to, and I'm pay attention to me i mean that's part of the deal i don't mean that in the the prince you know and that don't look at me way but 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 to pull that off with all that with that bunch and boy talent you could kind of see the talent seeping seeping forward but but then you also see somebody like huey lewis who i'm who i i admire him for what he pulled off what he accomplished he ended up getting singing a pretty good part on that a buddy of mine just was really impressed with his part and all the guys in the news
1: are on that record too yep yep yeah it's uh and you know at the time I took it for granted I I just you know all these celebrities were kind of omnipresent and I was relatively young so yes they were that is so true they'd all all been either people I'd heard of for what seemed like my whole life or people who'd been so present in the last couple of years and you know when you're 14 or 15 18 months seems like 10 years now like when you, yeah. you know when you're 50 yep. 10 years goes so fast but when you're 15 18 months is a long time and you know you know and so all these people just seemed I totally took them for granted I, I was I was tired of seeing them and I I didn't appreciate um what we had when we had it, but you could never do this now. (laughs) Nobody has the kind of celebrity wattage. I mean, there's lots of celebrities, but there aren't that many celebrity musicians. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people that are sort of famous, but nobody knows what, unless you're in their demo – you don't know, you know, like somebody our age has no idea. Like we might have heard the word Machine Gun Kelly, and you know, if we're not confusing mm-hmm. it with the the gangster from the '40s, we're thinking, okay, I've heard of this guy. He's some kind of pop singer slash rapper or something. But you don't have a song in your head to go with it, because because the songs just don't get disseminated. That you don't hear them being played in restaurants and et cetera, out the windows like you did back in the day. In the 80s, if somebody had a hit single, it was everywhere and you could not get away from it. So people, even if you didn't like them, people knew who these people were and knew what songs went with them. And it was just a big deal and it could not happen. It, 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 maybe 1985 was the only time it could have happened. But, you know, I, I don't know. Did, did we? Uh... Well, you know, I what
2: strikes me is that Like we've talked about some that I feel like parachuted into that year or, you know, that weren't part of the organic early 83 moving on in. Um, But this was not a cynical ploy to, Hey, let's Let's, let's um, capitalize on, on this, this incredible year one more time by crowding all these people in because it could have gone South. And I think that's, I wonder if that's part of why Michael didn't do live aid because some, and some things did go south. I don't remember anything negative about it. And I mean, listening to and reading the book again, reading the the next chapter, but reading this too, I never thought of it being a, a difficult thing to pull off or even difficult to get all these people together and and herd the cats. You know, I didn't, I yeah. didn't, never thought of it that way. I just thought it was, yes, it, it almost seemed like a natural capper to, to such a star-studded year and it wasn't it was not a it was not um a fate accompli it was something that really had to kind of one more kind of extraordinary thing happen to bring it
1: on yeah i i think so and i think that it's very clever of matos i don't know if it's clever or insightful but to give like when you do a book like this that's covering all pop music for an entire year to give it a narrative structure this is a perfect device because so many of the characters come together in these two songs and then come back for live aid and uh it's 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 just really brilliant um writing that he that he structured it that way because you know it's the long 1984 you know he starts the book out basically in 81 and it goes through the middle of 1985 it's it's to understand what made that year possible, you have to understand the recession and the and the implosion of disco that created the opportunity, and also the ossification of AOR radio and classic rock, mm-hmm. and also the brief window of opportunity that "quote unquote" new wave got in the in the say eighty eighty one period. But you know it was already closed down by the time bands like X wanted their opportunity, and so you know the ground was laid. Beforehand, And then the apotheosis of all the pop success of 84 comes together in these two charity collaboration singles and then Live Aid, which we'll talk about next time, which brings together so many of these people in person and also brings some people who didn't have particularly great 1984s in and gives them a chance to steal the show. And we'll talk about that next time when we welcome author Michelangelo Matos to join us to, this, to wrap our discussion of his masterful book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. And for Ed Legg, I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we'll see you next time.
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It And check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes Mike Stark for a discussion of his oral history of Black Sabbath. Letter Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com.